0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to hold it up with me and repeat this affirmation after me. This is God's Word. I believe what it says is true. It teaches me how to know God and how to live for God. It has the power to change my life. Now if you're here and you're not yet a Christ follower you're probably wondering why in the world do we do that? And the reason we do it is because we believe that the Bible is a unique one-of-a-kind book. It is the Word of God and we believe that the Bible has the power when read and applied to change our lives and it's my prayer that if you're here and And you're not a Christ follower. As we open up God's word this morning, and as hopefully you will open up God's word on your own, His word will penetrate your heart, your spirit, and change your life. Now, if you have those Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to two passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, and then hold your place there and turn back to Acts chapter 18 and 19. Both of those books are in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. Acts is the next book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And then you have Romans, First and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. So Ephesians chapter 1, and then Acts chapter 18 and 19. Now when you hear the word radical, what comes to your mind? Do you picture a Muslim terrorist? Do you picture a religious zealot? Do you picture a white supremacist or a black separatist? Maybe when you hear the term radical, you you think about a person like the person who made the prediction that the world was going to end yesterday. Did you hear that? I mean, the world was supposed to end yesterday. Obviously, we're here. And it didn't, and he, like many others before him, was wrong. When we hear of people that make predictions like this, we, we call them radical. Now, most often when we think of that term radical, we're thinking about someone who has a certain political, social, or religious gr- um, view that is outside the mainstream. We would use words like extreme, dissident, troublemaker to describe them. When we look up that word radical in the dictionary, the adjective of that word is defined this way. It is advocating fundamental or revolutionary changes in current practices, conditions, or institutions. The noun is defined this way. It is one who advocates fundamental revolutionary changes in current practices, conditions, and and institutions. Now you may be asking, why are we talking about that term radical? Why are we trying to define that term radical? Well the reason is, is because for the next several months we are going to be looking at what I believe may be the most radical book in the Bible. Not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible. Because in this book, the book of Ephesians, Paul teaches us some doctrinal truths that if we understand, they will radically change the way we look at who we are and who God is. And then he teaches us some radical truths that if we put them into practice in our life, they will change not only the way we live, but I am convinced they will change the world that we live in. Now, I want us to start this morning as we begin this series by looking at verses 1 and 2 and then looking back at, at Acts 18 and 19 on how this church was birthed, how it was started. Let's start by reading Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. The letter, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Now Paul begins this letter like most people began letters back in that day. He first of all told us who he was, the one who was writing the letter, and then he told us who he was writing to. Now notice how Paul describes himself. He says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, chosen by the will of God have you ever considered that God has chosen you for a purpose God has chosen you for a plan have you ever stopped to think that God may have a unique a specific a special purpose or plan for your life just like he had for Paul Paul's God given purpose God's God given task was to be an apostle do you know what yours is Have you ever searched to find that purpose, that plan for your life? Here's what I know. You can be very successful in life. You can have an incredible career. You can make a lot of money. You can live in the places you want to live and go the places you want to go and have the things you would like to have and yet never discover God's will for your life. But if you go through life having everything that this world says is success, and you miss God's perfect will for your life, you're going to miss what you were created for. Now, the Bible says that Paul was called to be an apostle. That word, apostle, simply means one who is sent out. And in a very broad way, we are all called to be apostles. We are all sent out by God, to share the good news of God's love with everyone else. And so in a very broad sense, you were called to be an apostle. In a very broad sense, I am called to be an apostle. In a more narrow sense, an apostle is someone who is sent out by the church as a missionary to share with people in other places. I am convinced with all my heart that God is calling people out of our church to be missionaries. He's not just calling some of our children who are in children's worship right now, and He's not just calling children who are sitting in this service or students who are sitting in this service, but He is calling some of you. I'm convinced of that. He's calling some of you adults. Some of you who are already adults, you're already in your career, God is calling you to pick up pack up, uproot, and be a missionary. And I understand that's scary, that's frightening, but that's what God has called you to do. And and I'm here to tell you, you're never going to find the peace of God that passes understanding until you do that. And so in a more narrow sense, an apostle is someone called out by the church to go to other people to share the gospel. But in a biblical sense, in the most narrow sense, the way Paul is using it, An apostle is someone who was called specifically by Jesus for an apostolic ministry. Now, to be an apostle, you had to see the resurrected Lord. And so in that sense, you and I cannot be apostles today. Because there are none of us who can have the kind of encounter that Paul had with Jesus that the other apostles who saw the resurrected Lord here on earth had with Jesus. Now some of you are going to get pseudo-spiritual and you're going to say, well God can come to me and show himself to me and, and call me to be an apostle. No, he can't. Because he called these people in his earthly body before he returned to heaven. And so in that sense, you cannot be an apostle. And so God called Paul to be an apostle. Paul makes it very clear that he was not chosen by men, he was not an apostle by the will of men, but he was an apostle by the will of God. And so here's Paul, an apostle, writing to the church at Ephesus. Now notice how he describes the church. He says they are God's holy people who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And that word holy, in most translations, is Translated, saint. Now in the Catholic Church, there have been to date over 10,000 named saints. Now in the Catholic Church, to be a saint, you have to meet three conditions. One, you have to be dead. And so none of you can be saints. Well, maybe some of you. <laughs> but you have to be dead. Second of all, your life is has to be studied and researched by the bishops and a council. And those bishops and that council have to verify that your life is above reproach. And then third, there has to be a miracle that has been performed in your name. And so once a person is dead, once a person has been researched, investigated and a miracle has been performed in their name, they can be canonized. They can be called a saint. The most recent pope, Pope Francis, has already canonized 850 people. 850. Mother Teresa is one of the people that that he canonized. And so some of us, when we think about saints, we think about that. The Roman Catholic Church has these saints. For other of us, we think about a saint as someone who is really, 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 really good. And we'll say things like, well, she was a saint. And, and we mean that, mean that in spite of what she had to put up with, typically her children or her husband, Or the life she had to put up with, she lived this incredible life. Or occasionally we'll hear someone say, well, they they were no good, but their dad, he was a saint. You'll hear people say that. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that, that every single believer, everyone who was a faithful follower of Christ was a saint. The word saint literally means holy. It means set apart. The root word simply means to be different. The Bible says that we are to be holy because God is holy. You see, as believers, we are set apart. We are to be different from the world because we are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, these believers in Ephesus... We were called to be saints in Ephesus. Now, for us to understand a little bit better how that transpired, we need to understand a little bit of the city and a little bit of the times. First of all, Ephesus was one of the five great cities in the Roman Empire. The other ones were Rome and Corinth and Antioch and Alexandria. So it was a great city. It was known as the greatest metropolis. In Asia, one person called it the light of Asia. It was a flourishing commercial city, wealthy beyond our imagination. Ephesus was a city where four major highways intersected, bringing business people and tourists from all over the world. They had an amphitheater in Ephesus that seated 25,000 people. That's a big amphitheater in that day they had the largest library in the known world now we haven't verified this historically but tradition tells us that that underneath that library they built a tunnel that went to the brothels on the other side of town and so men could tell their wives i'm going to the library to read and they would go to the library and then they would get into the tunnels and they would go over to the brothels. Now we don't know if that's true or not, but that's what tradition tells us. So it was a commercial city. It was an educational city. It was a a sports city. Every year they they held the Artemisian Games in Ephesus. The Artemisian Games were second to the Olympics. It would be like having the, the world's Fair or or the Olympics in your city every single year that's the kind of city Ephesus was but its biggest attraction was the temple to Diana it was the largest temple in the known world and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world there were thousands literally thousands of temple priests and priestesses there to the temple Diana. And that takes us to the other thing about Ephesus. Not only was, was it a city that was wealthy and a city filled with, with educational and, and, and sports and, and, and all of these various things, it was a vile and vulgar city. Prostitution was rampant and, and there were all kinds of things that were just filthy and dirty there. And it was in this city That Paul planted a church that literally uprooted the world. We see this beginning in Acts chapter 18 verse 18. In that verse we see Paul and and his companions, they leave Corinth and the first port they arrive in is Ephesus and and Paul leaves Priscilla and, and Aquila there and some of the others and he goes on and he continues his ministry while they stay in Ephesus and begin to work, and begin to serve. While they were there, they would go to the synagogue every week, and and as they went to the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila heard this man. His name was Apollos, and and he was an incredible speaker. He was bold, and he was dynamic, and he was persuasive, and he would tell people about Jesus, but he didn't have the full story. He, He was missing the entirety of the gospel. So the Bible says that Priscilla and Aquila took, apollos into their home and and more accurately told him the things of jesus and apollos became one of the greatest preachers in the ancient world after a while apollos felt like god was calling him to corinth to go and, and he did he went to corinth and he began to preach it and that's why if you read the book of first corinthians One of the things you will read there is Paul talking about some say they follow Apollos, some say they follow Paul, some say they follow Jesus. You read that there because Apollos had been there ministering and he was such a powerful proclaimer of the Word of God. So shortly after Apollos left Ephesus and and went to Corinth, Paul came back to the city. And immediately when he came back, he, he met some disciples. But there was something missing in these disciples' lives. They knew the message of John the Baptist. And John came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. But they had not heard about Jesus. And so Paul sat down and told them about Jesus. They accepted Jesus. They were baptized. And the Bible says they were filled with the Spirit. And from there, Paul began to... Build a church. The Bible says that he he initially went to the synagogue and he boldly proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue for three months. And many people came to faith. Many people accepted the good news about Jesus, but there were some who rejected the message. And to be honest with you, there were some who were antagonistic toward the message. And that's how it always will be. You see, as we share the gospel, there will be some who hear the word and receive it. There will be others who hear the word and don't want to have anything to do with it. And then there will be others who not only reject the word, they turn against the word and will try to destroy it. And so the Bible says after three months, Paul left the synagogue and he went to this lecture hall of Tyrannus. And the Bible says that he began to discuss with them, boldly proclaiming the word of Jesus. And he did that for two years. Now that word discuss, it literally means to reason with. And so Paul didn't just get up in this lecture hall and preach and leave. No, for for two years, Paul had discussions with people, answering their questions, telling them how Jesus Christ, this one who was born, this one who died, this one who was resurrected, is God in the flesh and how every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess to him. And for two years he did that. And many people came to faith, to the point that at the end of two years, every single person, the Bible says Jew and Greek alike, in the province of Asia had heard the gospel, every person, within two years. Think about it this way. Let, let's say that God so radically gets a hold of our lives and we get so bold with our faith that we begin to share this gospel to the, to the point that within two years, every person in Lexington, every person in West Columbia, every person in Casey, every person in Gass, Gaston, every person in batesburg leesville every person in Columbia, every person in Blythewood and beyond, every person had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what happened within two years. And many people were coming to faith in Jesus. And God began to do some strange things. I mean, as you read Acts 19, you can't use any other word other than strange. The Bible says that that God empowered Paul so that if anyone had handkerchiefs or aprons and, and those handkerchiefs or or aprons touch Paul, and then they touched a person who was sick or a person who was possessed by a demon, the sick person would be healed. The person who was possessed by a demon would be set free. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's not like Paul would go and pray over them and they'd be healed. No, you'd go to Paul, you'd take your handkerchief, you'd touch the handkerchief to Paul, then you'd go to the sick person, touch the sick person with the handkerchief, and they would be healed. Now some of you are going, man, I want that to happen here. I don't. I don't want that. Because then people will be coming to faith in Christ just simply because they were healed. Instead of because He is God. And He is worthy of our worship and praise. But God chose to do that to the point that many people were coming to faith in Christ. Well, during this time, there were some men, they were called the seven sons of Siva, who decided they were going to cast out demons like Paul was doing. And so they began to cast out demons, even though they didn't know Jesus. And so as they tried to cast out this demon, the demon spoke to them and said, Jesus we know, Paul we know, but who are you? And the demon turned on these men, beat them senseless stripped them naked, and they ran out into the city. As you can imagine, people were scared to death. What's going on here? And the Bible says that the people were filled with fear, and the name of Jesus was held in high honor. Well, because of that, many people were turning from their pagan worship. And as they did, they were not simply turning from their pagan worship, they were leaving their pagan worship behind. And there was a group of people that repented of their sins, confessed Jesus as their Savior, and, and they brought their books that they did sorcery with, and they bought, brought their trinkets that they used to worship with, and they, they built this great bonfire in the middle of the city and they burned their books and their trinkets and the bible says that those books and those trinkets were worth millions of dollars millions of dollars well as you can imagine as the gospel spread these false pagan religions began to dwindle and those who made their money off these pagan religions began to be upset and one of the men was named Demetrius. He was a silversmith he He was the head of his local union and because people were not worshiping Diana as much as they used to, they were not buying these these idols to the goddess Diana anymore and so they weren't making as much money and so Demetrius got all of the people upset and they brought Paul's friends who were with him out into that large amphitheater that seated 25,000 people and it was crowded people all around and they were yelling and screaming and they wanted to kill them Paul wanted to go out there and help them but one of his friends who wasn't a believer Held Paul back and said, no, you can't. And so Paul didn't go. Finally, the mayor of the city came out. And he said, these men that you're accusing, they haven't done anything wrong. They haven't stolen anything from the temple. They haven't blasphemed our goddess Diana. They have done nothing wrong. Unless you can prove that they have done something wrong, they must be let go. Because if we don't, we're going to start a riot and Rome's going to come in here and they're going to get us all. So the Bible tells us that that mob dispelled. They left and the people went away. And, and a short time after that, Paul left. But as Paul was getting ready to go to Jerusalem, eventually to make his way to Rome, He wanted to meet with the elders, the pastors of the church in Ephesus one more time. So in Acts chapter 20, he brings them together. And he encourages them. And he teaches them one more time the things that they need to know to disciple and to shepherd the flock in Ephesus that that God is growing into his body, his church. It's five years later when Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. He's in a, at a prison in Rome as he writes this letter, telling them these truths that will help them continue to be radical followers of Jesus. But what I want to do right now for just a couple of minutes is I want to share with you five things that we see from this story in Acts chapter 19 because here's what I know. I want to radically change our city. We're not. We're not, but I want to. I want the church of Jesus Christ to radically change this city, to radically change our culture, to radically change our state, to radically change our nation and our world. We're not! We're losing the battle! We don't have to. And I believe as we read this account we discover some things that can help us know how to radically change our city and our culture. With the gospel of Jesus Christ so let me give them to you here's the number one thing we must live with integrity if we as believers are going to radically penetrate our culture we must live with integrity in the world that we live in look at chapter 19 verse 37 here's what it says you brought these men here but they have stolen nothing from the temple and they have not spoken against our goddess you see even though their message Was radically changing the people and it was radically changing the culture no one could bring an honest accusation against these believers and the reason is they were living their lives with integrity they had done nothing wrong when Paul wrote this letter to Ephesus he said in Ephesians chapter 4 be careful how you live did you get that we need to be careful as followers of Jesus how we live so that we live above reproach, so that we live our lives with integrity. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says this, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. In other words, Peter says, we need to live in such a way so that when the lost world accuses us and makes accusations against us, one day when they stand before God, they will have to say before the throne of God, these people have lived lives worthy of respect. Jesus said this, He said that we are to let our light so shine before men that they can see our good works so that our Father in heaven will be glorified. And so, my question is this How are you living your life in the world? Are you living your life above reproach? Are you living your life with integrity? How do you conduct your business? How do you pay your taxes? How do you treat your neighbor? What kind of things come out of your mouth? If if you were given too much change when you check out at Target or Walmart, do you consider that a gift from God? Or do you go back and say, Here, you've given me too much money. You need to recount. Are you living your life with integrity? Here's what I know. The world is never going to listen to the message we have until our life represents the messenger that we're sharing about. We've got to live in such a way that Jesus is honored and glorified by the way we live. And so are you living that way at school, at work, with your neighbors, at the ball field I mean if you're a Carolina fan in the fourth quarter when Louisiana Tech scored and everything seemed hopeless were you cursing were you taking your third or fourth beer and I'm not preaching at you I'm just telling you that your life has to be a life above of integrity a life of reproach if we're ever going to radically change our community. Second, we must build relationships with non-believers. In verse 31 of chapter 19 it says this some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. The word officials is the Greek word asiarch there. The Asiarch was the president of the public festivities of the city. He was connected with the worship of Rome and the emperor of Rome. This Asiarch, he was a big deal. And he wasn't a believer. And yet Paul had developed a friendship with this man to the point that when this riot was going on, this friend who was not a believer came to Paul's defense that doesn't happen unless you are building relationships with people Jesus said we are to be friends with sinners listen he didn't say you're to be friendly with sinners certainly we should but it's easy to be friendly with a sinner it's a whole nother thing to be friends with sinners to be friends with sinners, you've got to spend time with them. You've got to build relationships with them. Now, full transparency here. Man, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with it. And, and I think the, the longer that most of us are Christ followers, the more we find ourselves struggling with it because the people we hang out with are, are typically Christians. And, and I mean, to, to make it even more difficult... I work in an environment where almost everyone except Pastor Scott, well, I'm joking, <laughs> you know, everyone is is already a Christian. And so it's not like I can go down the hall and, you know, share Jesus with somebody. And so I've, I've got to go out of my way. I've got to find some way to build these relationships with people who are far from God. I mean, back when I had kids playing ball, I... I could coach a ball team, or, or I could do those kind of things. Now my kids are all grown, and I don't even want to go to those ball games anymore. <laughs> That's sad, isn't it? But I mean, I'm being real. I'm being transparent. And, and, and so it's tough. And yet, and yet the Bible says that if we're going to radically change our culture and our community and our city, we've got to build relationships with people who are far from God. And so let me ask you. Who are you building relationships with that is far from God? They're far from God so that you can share the gospel. You may go fishing with them. You may go hunting with them. You you may play basketball with them. Your kids may play sports with them. There are a variety of things that we can do, but, but, but if you have a difficult time figuring out a way, understand that you have a responsibility to figure out that way. Because you and I were to build those relationships. We're to be friends, not just friendly, with sinners. Third, we must boldly share the uncompromised gospel. Listen to what it says in verses 18-20. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. And and by the way, the, the context of the Greek text here is they didn't just confess this before God. They were publicly confessing their sins. I mean, when revival takes place, when God really takes a hold of a people, I mean, you're, you're just wanting to get right. And so they were confessing their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books, burned them out in a public bonfire. The value of the books were several million dollars, so the message about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. The uncompromised gospel has to be proclaimed. Now, Now, Paul told us what this uncompromised gospel was in Acts 20. In Acts 20, 21, when he was meeting with the elders to encourage them as he thought he was going to his death, he said this, he said, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike. The necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God, and having faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that? The uncompromised gospel includes repenting of sin, turning to God, and having faith in Jesus Christ. It includes repenting of sin, turning from sin. So what that does is that takes away easy believism. That takes away this belief that if I say a prayer, if I make this affirmation or if I've been baptized I can continue in my sinful practices and go to heaven and the Bible says you can't the Bible says the gospel includes repenting turning from sin the truth of the matter is if if you want to continue in your sinful practices you haven't come to know what the gospel is all about the gospel is not for keeping you out of hell The gospel is for setting you free from the power of sin, not just death. So you have to turn from sin. And then you have to trust Jesus alone. This takes away the the idea that the gospel is moral theism. That if I believe in God and I try to do good, then I'm going to go to heaven. No. No. The Bible says that that doing good is not going to get you to heaven regardless of what you believe. The only one that can get you to heaven is Jesus Christ. And so I have to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel message is we turn from our sin and we trust Jesus who died for our sins was buried and rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. So we've got to share the uncompromised gospel. Fourth, we must proclaim this truth in the church and outside the church. In Acts 19, verses 8 through 10, it says, Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue, took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years, so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, everyone, heard the word of the Lord. We must faithfully proclaim the gospel. In the church and outside the church Paul began by sharing in the synagogue and we need to share the gospel the good news the Word of God in the church that's why whenever we come together as a body this word is going to be presented even though our life groups aren't just a Bible study time that's not what they're supposed to be they're supposed to be care groups as well you need to understand that when our life groups come together they are centered around the word of god and the reason is is because this word has the power to change lives and so when we come together we focus on god's word and understand as long as i am the pastor at Northside, you're going to hear the word of god presented you may want a good feel-good message You you may want something else. But what we're going to do is we're going to systematically open up the Word of God and let God's Word speak for itself. Because it's not me that can change your life. It's the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God that can change your life. So we present the Word in the church. By the way, that's why when you leave today, you need to take these invite cards and you need to pass them out because we believe that when you invite people here and they come with you they're going to hear the word of God and God can use that word to change their life. But understand as long as we have a come and see attitude all we need to do is just go out and invite people to church invite people to church, invite people to church we're never going to change our culture. It's not going to work it's not going to work. We have to go out of the church, into the streets, into the marketplace to change the world that's tough it's difficult it's easy for me to stand up here and proclaim God's truth it's easy for a teacher to stand in a classroom setting and proclaim God's truth it's much more difficult out there in a hostile world and yet that's what we are called to do for two years In the lecture hall of Tyrannus, they had discussions about the Word of God. To the point that after two years, every single person in the province had heard the gospel. Everyone hadn't responded, but everyone had heard. Do you know that's our responsibility? That's our responsibility we have a responsibility to get the gospel out so that everyone within traveling distance of our church have heard the word of god everyone in a neighborhood that any northside person listens to that neighborhood everyone in that neighborhood should have heard the word of god that's our responsibility and we are never going to radically penetrate our culture until we do that. And so they share the gospel inside the doors and outside the doors. And when they did that, notice what happened. We see God do what only God can do. Verses 11 and 12, God gave Paul the power to perform unusual miracles when handkerchiefs or aprons that had merely touched his skin were placed on sick people. They were healed of their diseases. Evil spirits were expelled. Now understand that's descriptive. That's not prescriptive all too often we read things in the Bible and we want to duplicate everything that happens in the Bible. Understand, I don't want to be wall- swallowed by a large fish. I have no desire. When we were in Alaska, we saw some large whales. I had no desire to jump in and say, Hey, I want to change my name to Jonah. No desire whatsoever. What this is saying to us is God can work however God chooses to Does that make sense? If how he is working is being used to proclaim the good news of God's love. And here's what happened. Within years, not only had everyone heard, but the culture in Ephesus was transformed to the point that within a hundred years, The temple of Diana was destroyed and it never was rebuilt to its former glory because people quit worshiping there. They recognized Diana as a false god. To the point that several hundred years later the gospel had not only penetrated Ephesus, the gospel had so penetrated the Roman Empire (laughs) that Christianity became the religion of the empire. The empire that along with the religious Jews nailed Jesus to a cross was now bending at his feet worshiping him. How did it happen? Because these believers were living lives of integrity. Because these believers were sharing the gospel passionately, uncompromised. Because these believers were sharing the gospel as they gathered in large groups and as they went out into the streets. And as they did, God worked. I don't know about you, but I want God to do it again. And and I believe with all my heart, the same gospel that had power in Paul's day has power today. And that doesn't mean that God's going to use a dirty handkerchief to heal someone. But what it does mean, speaking of dirty handkerchief, what it does mean is that God will use the gospel to transform someone. And I want him to do it again. Do you? If you do then here's what I want you to do. In just a moment we're going to have our altar time and our altar is going to be open and if that's your desire, your desire is for God to radically change our city. Then I want you to come to the altar and I want you to pray. And and there's probably an area of your life that you struggle with like I do that you need to say God help me in this area of my life so that we can be used to radically transform our city, our culture. Just pray and talk to God. I want to encourage you to do that. But then there are others of you who you, you've never met Jesus yet. And, and as we said here, we talk about radically changing our culture and our city. You know that something's missing in your life. And, and in, inside, deep down inside, you know what is missing. It's a relationship with God through Jesus. And the reason you feel this way right now is because God is drawing you to himself. He wants to save you. And and you're at a crossroads this morning. You can respond to God's call to be saved, to turn from your sin and trust Jesus alone to save you. Or you can walk out of this door rejecting his message. Perhaps never to have the opportunity to be saved again. So what will it be? I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes with me. With every head bowed, with every eye closed, I want to talk to those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus. If that's you and here this morning, you have a desire to turn from sin and to trust Jesus alone by His death on the cross, His resurrection from the grave to be the payment for your sins, To be the payment to make you right with God, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, in this moment, to pray this prayer from a sincere heart. Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me for all my sins. Jesus, I'm turning from sin. I don't want to be controlled by sin anymore. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you died on the cross to set me free from the power of sin. Right here, right now, I'm trusting you to save me. Come into my life, fill me with your spirit, and give me not only the desire, but give me the power to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving.